Welcome to Broken Office Chair, a new podcast produced by Alternatives, a Chicago-based nonprofit. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives' Executive Director, Bessie Alcantara. Bessie is a Chicago native and first-generation Salvadorian Mexican-American who's passionate about dismantling systemic racism. In each episode, Bessie will be joined by her friends and colleagues who are ready to talk frankly about the most important issues facing the nonprofit sector. A quick listener note, this episode contains language that may not be appropriate for younger listeners. For more information, check out the show's description. This week, Bessie is joined by author, activist, poet, and friend, Leslie Honoré. You may know her as the author of Brown Girl, Brown Girl, a poem that went viral after Kamala Harris became vice president. She is the former managing director of strategy and communications for the Center for Neighborhood Technology, a nonprofit that focuses on providing data-driven solutions for community-based organizations so that they can support communities to be healthy, sustainable, rich in culture, and resilient. Since recording this episode, Leslie has transitioned into her new role as CEO of Urban Gateways, a nonprofit that encourages young people in arts experiences to inspire creativity and impact social change. She was also recently appointed as co-chair of Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson's Arts and Culture Subcommittee. To learn more about Leslie and to read her poetry, including her viral poem, Brown Girl, Brown Girl, visit her website at www.lesleyhonore.com. In today's episode, Bessie and Leslie will be discussing the barriers of being impoverished and how the systems in place to help those in poverty are oftentimes unhelpful. Leslie and Bessie dive into their own experiences facing poverty and how those experiences shaped their careers today. So I want to take it back a little bit because when we were talking the other day, you know, a little texting, I found out something new about you, and that is the intro into the wealth disparity, right? And so that was really early on for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I grew up in Los Angeles. My dad was Black and from New Orleans. My mom was Black and she's immigrated from Mexico when she was 15. I'm first generation proud daughter of an immigrant and you peep that did i peep for people on the podcast i have a sweatshirt that says daughter of an immigrant on there right now so, so mm-hmm. i'm very proud to be both the daughter of an immigrant and the daughter of the survivors of uh, enslavement here in this mm-hmm. nation and i feel i talk about it a lot in my poetry i feel as american as it comes either by birthright or blood right this is my country I mean, mm-hmm. the majority of them belong to Mexico at one point. Facts. So, <laughs> we don't talk about that enough, but. <laughs> this, is, this is my land and my my native heritage and my African heritage. This is my country and I feel free to criticize her because I want her to be better. But grew up in Los Angeles and was fairly middle class. My dad was with LAPD for 27 years. That story is interesting. I think his first riot was Watts Riot in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And then my first riot was Rodney King in the 90s. And then my mom was a teacher. So she actually worked for the Maxine Waters Skill Center. And she taught banking. So she taught immigrants how to have a life skill. And in the early 90s, my mom got multiple sclerosis. Mm-hmm. And so we went from a family of two incomes 
union family, you know, where everybody works, there was some luxury, but a lot of hard work very quickly to a one income family, which was really scary. My mom's income being lost for a number of years because the process of going to full disability can take up to two years for a person who is disabled to prove that they're disabled mm -hmm. to get on disability. And then it's not the complete you know, value of, of what your work was before. And then there's a big gap between when disability starts and when you can retire, even if you have a pension. So we very quickly went from comfort to worry to all hands on deck. I've always worked as soon as I could get a working permit. I think the longest time I went without working was after my kids were bored for a period when I got to stay home with them. But even when I was pregnant, like I worked up until a week before I gave birth. Like that's just what we had to do. So I went to private school, but I paid for tuition. I paid for my books. Like it was very much a partnership with my family. Like if we want to continue the lifestyle that we have, there's some things that we have to let go. But there was also always this ominous fear of, will there be enough? Will we be able to pay the mortgage? It's so wild when you think about it, right? There's so much to unpack in, in your story, because one of the themes that keeps coming up for me as I'm listening to you is this piece about how, as a society, we think people's income is so inherently tied to their value. Yeah. And being in poverty is a as a character trait mm -hmm. as opposed to just something that this system has create you know created for you. Yeah. And where I heard where I started to hear this connection to value in your story was how your mom had to prove what she was worth in order to be able to collect disability benefits yep. just to be able to make a living. Yep. And it's funny, I've worked so many jobs, but I'm always humbled when it comes full circle when something I've learned before comes into play currently. So for a time, I think between 2013 and 2016, I did direct services. I was a case manager with Thresholds mm -hmm. and was the only person of color on my team on the West Side, which meant I got everybody who lived in Austin and my coworkers got everybody who lived in Oak Park. I wonder why that was. Hmm. Um, so I had to make the relationships with, you know, the drug dealers. My car was on the boot list. I'm like, hey, don't let them boot me while I make sure so-and-so gets their meds. I was the person who went into the doctors with people after their family was just burnt out from trying to figure out how to navigate a very tricky system with someone who had severe and reincurring mental illnesses. And then one of my biggest jobs I did was helping people navigate how to get benefits. Everyone from people who had PhDs or college students, people who, who never knew what a severe mental illness looked like until they had it, to people who were diagnosed very early on and weren't ever able to really establish work. And so we did everything from help them find jobs that were meaningful. We know that that contributes a lot to people's mental illness and, and recovery, working with their employers and helping them understand the benefits to hiring someone in a protected class financially, but just socially, how you contribute to a community and doing that. But the toughest barriers were helping them get disability benefits. Like it just shouldn't be that hard. So knowing what my mom went through mm -hmm. and then trying to help someone else go through that same process and it taking, you know, 18 months, 24 months, even with a diagnosis, even if they had been diagnosed for decades, if they'd been unhoused for decades, just the fight to go through the system 
for them to have a dignified life, insane. Which goes back to, if anything, this pandemic has taught us is that our government can respond when it impacts everybody, right? We absolutely. When can. it impacts the middle class, when it impacts the rich, all of a sudden we developed a vaccine right away. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden resources were poured into community, right? And so then you have to think about why it's been so long and we haven't made a, a system more accessible so that people can live quality of life. Because we don't want to. Right, because we don't value we people don't. who are poor. We it don't. goes back to that initial yeah. thing, right? And, and it's funny because when I heard your story, it started to make me reflect on what my upbringing has been like. And, you know, first generation as well. My mom's from El Salvador. My dad's Mexican. And so, you know, yep. we, we have that little piece in common. But my mom was a housekeeper. And so sometimes when she couldn't, when we were out of school, I had to go to work with her because, you know, the couldn't afford childcare. Mm -hmm. So I have to go to work with her. And it was really interesting thinking back to all the times that I was told to like sit in a room and not touch. And I'm like six, right? And I Don't know touch better. anything. You can't touch it. Bien. Right, exactly. Right. Sit right there. Yeah. Because you knew that you would get in trouble if you touched anything. And if the person, you know, oftentimes the person she was working for had kids and sometimes kids my age, but I wasn't allowed to play with them. Mm -hmm. I couldn't touch the, their things. And my mom was like, you're the housekeeper's daughter. Nobody wants to play with you. And so like this inherent shame that yeah. you're taught about your circumstances. And it's the, the heartbreaking part is when you then become an adult and you understand she wasn't trying to give you shame. She was trying to protect you from from the pain of reaching out to them and then not wanting to play with you and oh, all absolutely. the layers to that. But in that moment, you just grow up with this otherness. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was funny because, you know, you do all the things, right? Both you and I have done all the things that they tell us to do to be successful, right? And then you come into these places and you're still carrying your baggage. You're still interacting with the same racist systems mm -hmm. that impacted your family and the same people who impacted your family. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that was really interesting to me when I first started interacting with funders was that I saw my mom's employer's faces yeah. and all the funders. And so I was scared to talk to them. And I can't do my job if I'm scared to talk to donors and funders. But literally, I'm like sitting here thinking about my mom being like, don't say the wrong thing. Don't talk. To, you know, for me, it was like even don't wear your big earrings. Let me say that I'm privileged to be in a place that I'm safer now. I've been really blessed to be able to create a network of people that if something were to ever happen that was discriminatory, the person would rue the day that it happened. But I try to show up now as fully as I can possibly be for someone else who doesn't right. see that. And, and to I'll, normalize it. And to normalize right? it. It doesn't, it doesn't diminish any of my accomplishments if I wear bright lipstick or a shirt skirt or my nails have funky art on it, or if I'm wearing my favorite earrings from a small business artist, it, it doesn't diminish that. It also doesn't diminish that I'm typically always the only person in the room who has had the lived experiences that these people are trying to solve in theory. Mm -hmm. So your master's and your PhD, your conceptualization of the problems that I've actually lived does not outrank me. And it took me a long time to value that. And I, I still struggle. I recently put up in my house, like two weeks ago, I finally took all the times I've been in a newspaper on, or on a cover and framed them, put them on my wall to remind me who the hell I am, because I forget a lot. Like it's very easy to, 
to forget, especially when you aren't ticking off other boxes of what women should should do and be to be successful. You know, some people may argue, right? I've heard this before. I've I have had it directed at me that you're living proof that if you just work a little harder and get the right education, then you don't have to be poor. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So got the right education, went to college, went to a historically black university, love Xavier University, but that doesn't guarantee anything. What it guarantees typically if you're black or brown is debt. It guarantees a lot of debt. It took me 20 years to get to an executive level in my career. 20 plus years, really. I keep saying 20 years, but that was like four or five years ago. The road wasn't, it's not always linear for us. Mm -hmm. It's not always you do this and then you do that and you do that. No, what has been more valuable than my education was critical thinking, was survival skills, was resourcefulness. As you know, I was married for 11 years and it was abusive. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what those red flags were because my parents didn't have an abusive marriage. They were married 40 plus years before my dad passed away. So I didn't know what to look for. Like, these are the things you look for and that's how you know your partner is going to be abusive to you. Had no clue. So when my ex-husband left us, I was faced with poverty in ways that I had never known that my parents had protected me from. So I know what it's like to be foreclosed on. I know what it's like to lose your job and be evicted. I lost my job in Thresholds in, in 2016. We had our wonderful Republican governor, who, who uh, Browner, who held humanities and social services at bay with his budget, no budget for three years. And lots of people lost their job. My, my kids know what that that looks like. I have been on food stamps. I've been on unemployment. I have gotten our food from pantries and I'm educated. You pointed at something, right? Because you talked about for us, that means debt, right? So we don't have the safety net. There's no cushion. Wealth, if something right? happens, that's it. That's it. You, we are always one step away from having deplete your savings to survive. Mm -hmm. And people don't talk about that. I love when people are like, oh yeah, well, you know, I'm, I made it on my own. Kylie Jenner, <sighs> self-made billionaire. None of you guys are self-made. Right, right. None of you guys are self-made. And even the people who look self-made, I'm not, I'm community made. I'm village made. Yes. I'm, I'm not, yes. there's nothing that I've done on my own. It has been through resources and connections and people who've seen and reached out and opened doors for me, which is why I'm always so committed to open the door for somebody else, because that's the only way we're successful as women, and especially as black and brown women, if we're intentional about creating other spaces, because someone created space for us. I appreciate that point, because I always say that I hate this bootstrap narrative. There are no bootstraps. No, they're, they're, they um, do I not would, exist. There are so many people that are the reason I'm here. So much sacrifice from others yeah. that are the reason I'm here today and so much sacrifice. And I want to go back to this debt point because I, I Ooh, find this weird. So here. I'm very open about the fact that I, you know, I, I went to undergrad, I went to graduate school and I took out a total of about $70,000 in debt. How much is it now? I'll get to that in a second, <laughs> right? Because yeah. the narrative is, again, you get a degree. You, you're you going to get do. a job. Right. Right. And I had now. a degree. You know how much I made it a caseworker? <laughs> I brought home $900 every two weeks. My rent was $1,100 for a two-bedroom that my kids and I were struggling to be in with a degree. My right. boss... My team lead, who had a master's and an LSW, he wasn't even making 40. Mm -hmm. And we were in the streets 
during polar vortexes, trying to literally save people's lives, ducking bullets, like doing the work of humanity and could hardly pay our bills. So my first case management job was for 24K, right? So I've been doing the- Big money. Right. <laughs> I've been doing the PSLF loan forgiveness program, right? The public service forgiveness. I'm one of the people who discovered last year that I didn't qualify. So with this new waiver, you know, I've gone back and looked at my repayment. So I've been re I've been in payment for seven years for my student loan forgiveness. So I've been making hear that I've been making payments for mm -hmm. seven years. I owe one hundred and fifteen thousand yep. dollars. Right. And so then people say, well, why did you take out this debt to get an education? Well, how the hell was I going to get it? Excuse me? I, weren't you the one who told me I, I don't have somebody that could have paid my tuition? Listen, did, did we miss the fact that my mom was asking Even for, now, right. I make a decent living. Right. I don't call it hustle or side gigs. I have a, a very, very career portfolio. Right. With that my you writing, <laughs> with speaking, with my board work. And it's all stuff that I'm proud of. And even when it's a lot, it's good work. So I never feel overwhelmed by that. Even with all of that, I'm not able to pay my student loans. I've taken out loans for my child's education. Mm -hmm. So she did not have to graduate mm -hmm. swimming in debt before you even start planning mm -hmm. what your life is going to be. Black and brown women carry the most student loan debt in the nation. If they were to alleviate that, our household incomes would increase by 40%. That's our ability nice. to contribute, like, Give me more money because I will I will spend that money. <laughs> right. I will it will go into the It'll this, go back into it the will economy. Go, like if you want capitalism to work, give me more capital. I will completely, fully, and totally buy into it. But capitalism going back is rooted in that idea of worth, right? Yeah. And how we think it, it makes me think of this. I, I had a conversation with a friend a while back and long story short, I got my coat stolen at an event. It was my first nice coat ever in life. Ooh, my first my first North Face. That hurt to buy. You were like, oh, why am I spending this much on this one thing? My uh, first North Face at like 36 years old. Right. I want to somebody. It hurt my heart, right? And because I have such a great community, a couple of my friends started to donate for me to replace the coat. And which, you know, it really means something. Yeah. And somebody else said to me, if you can't afford the coat, you, you shouldn't, shouldn't buy it. it. People can't see her facial expressions right now. What comes Ooh, up for you? I want to punch them. It's like, <laughs> it's like the people who go, you know, well, you're on food stamps. Why are you buying, you know, a steak or a lobster? Or, you know, you are poor. Why do your kids have nice things? You know, why... You're not worthy of those You're things. You're not worthy You're of those things. You should only eat crap food. And then we're going to complain when you overburden the medical system because you don't have health care for preventative care. So you're only going to come in when you're almost dying and you're only going to come in when you're almost dying is because you live in communities with poor air quality because we did that to you. You can't grow your own food. I don't know if anybody knows this. The soil in Chicago is so toxic. If you want to grow something yourself, you have to do raised platforms. That's good to know. Because your food will kill you. And then we have food deserts. The community I live in, the nearest grocery store, like full complete grocery store, is one train and two buses away 
or at least a $15 Uber. And they just opened it. It's the first grocery store in Woodlawn in over 50 years. So you have to get food from corner stores that typically are, you know, a lot of food that have a long shelf life, because when you're poor, that's how you have to shop. You have to make the most of what you can. So you're buying a lot of staples. You're buying things that are high in sodium. You're buying things that, that can live a long time. You're not buying a lot of fresh fruit because you, you can't get to the store weekly mm-hmm. to replenish it. Mm-hmm. And now you have all these health problems that are really created by the society you live in. And then I'm going to shame you when you seek health care for it. And so what you're touching on that people don't even start to think about, it's that cost of being poor. It is. I save so much more money now. Mm hmm. Because I did when I didn't. You can buy in bulk. I can, can drive it. to it. You can buy a nice pair of shoes. I can. I don't have to replace them over and over again. I can buy one coat and that coat can last me multiple seasons. Mm-hmm. It's people don't understand. If you've never lived it, you have no clue. You have none. There's a really cool calculator online. I wish I could think of the name of it. And that's what people that I work with at CMT do, they create these really small, smart tools. This isn't ours. We have stuff for ETLD and, 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 (laughs) but this one is literally giving you a salary, I think of $1,200 and see the life decisions that you have to make with that. Oh, the choices that you have to make. How do you balance your rent? How do you balance your um, lights, your gas? Often for a long period of time, I would make just too much money to get food stamps. Like I would be maybe like a hundred dollars over like that, that period where you're not quite well enough to, you're you're not well enough to be all the way. Okay. But then people are like, if you just budget it, I'm sorry, a buying a $5 latte is not going to get me out of poverty. Also, it's not going to change anything in that same conversation. We don't, don't want to raise the livable wage. Well, here's here's the thing. Here's (laughs) here's why we don't want to raise minimum wage. Just this follow my thoughts on this. And a lot of this I got from working at SEIU. So the union here that is responsible for everybody in the medical industry who are not doctors and nurses. Mm-hmm. So when you think about home health care workers, child care workers who do home daycare or daycares at a center, when you think about the janitors that clean the hospitals, the people who do food distribution, that's that's who SEIU focuses on. When I was there, my tenure, I was there, I was the executive director for their member education and training center. Mm-hmm. So we were the people responsible for training the people who then worked for the state as home care workers or child care workers, and they have to get certified. It's a dignified profession to take care of the most vulnerable people at both ends Mm -hmm. of our society at the beginning, at the end, and with severe disabilities and fighting for them to get a livable wage, fighting for them to get days off, fighting for them to get health care and a pension, Mm -hmm. things we all should have a right to. The majority of people who do work that is considered low skill or unskilled, Mm -hmm. the majority of people who do work for low wages are people of color and women. And why should we pay the people that we enslaved to do free work? Our country has been built on free labor. Mm -hmm. And after free labor was broken apart, then we had the 13th Amendment to ensure that there was another free labor we can get out through imprisonment. And the free labor of women has always been how every nation has survived. Mm -hmm. Our labor as mothers, home care workers, supporters of partners in their positions, Our labor has always been free. Why the hell should they pay us? Why should they pay the people that they don't want to see? 
they really don't have any respect for. They really don't care how we live. It's never been about us. And until we become honest about first acknowledging how this country came to be, we are not a nation of immigrants. We're a nation of enslaved people. Mm-hmm. We're a nation of genocide. Yes, Immigration that's... came later. Mm-hmm. The first immigrants weren't immigrants. They were colonizers. They were warmongers. They were murderers. They were killers. They were thieves. That's not a conversation we're ready to have. We're, so. And until we do, we are never going to get to the point where we can talk about the legacy of that. Did you see what Florida's trying to do right now? Girl, yeah. We don't, they don't want to talk about the truth. It's disturbing. And, and it's also like... For context for this. Oh, yeah, so, go ahead. Yeah. So the governor there, did he pass it or propose? He's proposing. He's proposing legislation that we can only teach about history as long as white people are not uncomfortable. Yeah. So I saw a tweet that basically said, white people, why are you so focused on the horror there? There are good white people that you can also highlight. They are wonderful abolitionists. There are litigators. Why why are you erasing that they even existed just because you're so afraid to talk about the truth? It's never going to be solved as long as we're afraid to talk about it. Never. It's never going away. That's the thing that's both like depressing and makes me not want to wake up and work. And then the thing that makes me go, well, you have to, because who the hell's it? Who else is like, you know, there's something that right now, when you said who else is right, we, we take on this responsibility to fix the, those of us with the burden, right? Take on yeah. the responsibility to fix it. And earlier in the conversation, you talked a little bit about if you've never experienced it, then you don't know. It's it's foreign to you. I want to touch on yeah. something else within that. And that's the friend who said that to me has been extremely poor. And so how those of us who've actually experienced mm-hmm. it continue to uphold that same system. Well, we can talk about that through the lens of racism again. Mm-hmm. So may, might make people mad or uncomfortable, but... <laughs> Here we go. (laughs) Kind of my thing. One of the gifts that immigrants are given Mm -hmm. when they come to America is the lovely gift of black hate. Mm -hmm. The easiest way to become a real American, the easiest way to be is close in proximity to oppression, to white supremacy, is to hate black people. And we accept it. And it's the legacy of colonization. It's the legacy of Manifest Destiny. It's the legacy of the British Empire. We've been taught that's how you survive. That is how you survive. You get close to the white person, the white master, Mm -hmm. and you get to live another day. You even hate yourself. You Mm -hmm. hate your hair. You hate your skin. And so you're taught to hate people who remind you of that. I mean, colorism in Latin America is very real. You can't escape it. It's not like you can pretend it doesn't happen the way we do in the United States. It is in your face. There are terms to mejor la raza, to marry somebody who is not brown. Mm-hmm. So you can get your kids and, and, and it's steeped in survival. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, it's, it's not, you know, something that's just done to be horrific. And there were intentional campaigns in Latin America to remove our heritage Very. from enslavement Very. and those things. So it's more complication. So in that same way, we are taught to hate if we are impoverished, we are taught to forget that that's happened. We are taught to celebrate when you, flaw. because it's the character flaw, because you, you are a bad person. Exactly. You made bad choices. I married somebody who ended up being an abuser. It's my fault mm-hmm. that my kids and I, you know, were technically what's called tier two homelessness. 
which means that you don't know where you're going to live in the next two weeks. Mm. It was my fault. It wasn't the fucked up society he lived in that gave him the trauma that turned him into a person who couldn't process in his emotions and became that. And listen, that's taken me a lot of work mm -hmm. to even see him in that light because I still hate his guts. <laughs> but we don't address that. We don't address the ramifications of it all. We only celebrate when we don't see it anymore, which is why I like having the conversation about it, which is why I like talking about what most people would consider a very flawed person. Mm -hmm. I've had all these things. My credit is not good. Divorce, single mom. I live on the South side, you know, like, you know, was extremely poor. I have friends who I think like me better when I needed a lot of help. Mm -hmm. than I am now. Mm -hmm. I like talking about it because people don't. Mm -hmm. They like to pretend that that chapter didn't happen and it's over. And the end result is what we celebrate. And I think my journey is so much more beautiful than the moment I'm in now. And I think it's important to hear that it normalizes it, right? Because you run into these obstacles yeah. every single time and you're just like, oh no, that's it. This is it. I, it you, you, it's almost like the Instagram version of everything. Like Girl, but before media. Instagram, I have a friend who is so concerned with presentation mm -hmm. facade. And I think it's also something innate to black and brown communities. We don't talk about what happens in the house outside of the house. Mm -hmm. We don't air dirty laundry. We don't but air think shame. About, think about the harm that can cause to our, come to our communities. If oh. somebody, like, let's take the conversation about spanking. Mm -hmm. You know, and the harm, again, cultural differences within that. Yeah. Now, some of it is abuse. I'll put that out there. Right. But the cultural differences. And now you've brought DCFS into the home. Mm -hmm. Now the children are going to get removed. The interpretation of who's aggressive and who is abusive. And yeah. so the harm that comes into black and brown homes when you do talk about all of these issues, or you do show up as vulnerable and authentic at work and you might what lose happens? your job. You might lose your job. When we think about the fact that I read a study that said as little as $5,000 is the difference between a family being seen as neglectful and having their children removed for them from DCFS than to being successful. So wow. the amount of money that we spend to remove a child from the home and I'm not talking about where there's drugs or mm -hmm. severe abuse. I'm talking about where there's the typical ne neglect that comes from poverty. Mm -hmm. I, I think anybody who's worked with kids, we've all gone through the training that helps us understand the difference between neglect and poverty. Right. They look the same. Mm -hmm. They smell the same. They look the same to somebody who, to somebody who has not been trained to understand what the difference is. The difference is huge, but to an untrained eye, they look equal. To a social worker who is exhausted and underpaid and overworked, it may be hard to see the differences, but that small amount of money may be the difference between someone losing their child and that child now going through the trauma of our foster care system, which is not designed to help in any way. And then that cycle starts and continues and continues and continues. You know... We often think of like nonprofits and social workers as being able to solve these problems. <laughs> I'm so tired of that being our burden. Like <laughs> we're, we're supposed to continually like fix all the problems that capitalism makes that right. like with nothing, we're supposed to lead on small salaries. We're supposed to find the brightest and the bravest and the boldest and the most compassionate people who have 
you know, multi-layer of talents who can do a podcast, who can be emotionally intellectual and, and, and see the differences, who are open, who are trained and pay them next to nothing. And we have to be happy about it the whole oh, time. Yeah. Cause I'll, yeah. you know, you can't be upset. No, no, no. You can't have compassion fatigue. How dare you want to go get a massage? You need to work on the problem more. You know, it's like, it is, it's, it's so messed up that when you find other people who are in the work, you immediately become kindred spirits because you, it's an unspoken understanding that's really hard to convey to people who've not worked in it. But I think that also, if you pay $150 for, for example, a private practice mental health provider, nobody's going to question your expectations, right? You expect to walk into a nice office. Mm -hmm. You expect to be greeted a certain way. You expect that you are going to get quality care because you paid $150 per hour for that, right? Yep. But our clients that we serve aren't paying so how dare they expect that their social worker not be exhausted? And mm -hmm. it, it all, it's this ongoing Because cycle. you're lucky. Right. You're you lucky got, you're getting the service get for free. You're, you're lucky that we're seeing you in any part human and deserving of integrity. So for people who want to learn more about yes. you, <laughs> where I, do they find you? You can find me on all social media platforms except TikTok. I have one. I still don't know what the hell to do with it. But <laughs> I'm on Facebook, Leslie Honore Poetry. Please go there and like. And my poems are all there. Instagram, it's Leslie Honore. Twitter, it's Leslie Honore. It's just my name because I like my name. I think it was it's groovy. So it's it's not a pseudonym or anything like that. My book Fist and Fire, it's available on Blurb. We haven't we didn't even talk about like my poetry and how like super humbled and grateful I am for that. I'll I'll, I'll talk about it and do it. a little Ooh, intro. Yeah. Awesome. Because in January of 2023, Brown Girl will be a children's book that you can buy so all over the world, illustrated by Cosby Cabrera, published by Little Brown, which is an imprint of Hatchet. That poem found me things that I never thought I would have. They only dreamed about my agent. Joanna Castillo is a magnificent woman for Ecuador for me to be represented by an immigrant, a brown woman who speaks Spanish, just gives me chills every time I talk about it. Anytime I meet with my editor, I'm like, I'm talking to my editor, I'm talking to my editor. <laughs> and after Brown Girl, it will be followed the following year by Brown Boy. So I'm just so honored to be able to tell our stories on such variant levels and to still be true and to continue to find ways for us to, to, be represented, especially in places where we don't always see reflections of ourselves. So buy Fist and Fire now. Follow me so you can know when to buy Brown Girl. Get it to Oprah. Buy it for all the brown people that you know, because every brown person you know is either was a brown girl at one time or has loved one. So all the gifts, it'll be out for maybe it'll be out for Three Kings Day. It'll be out for Martin Luther the King Day. It'll be out for Black History Month, Valentine's Day, Easter. You find a holiday and you buy my book, damn it. <laughs> you help me get out of debt to pay the student loans that are that are mine and those of my children. Well, Leslie, always a pleasure. Oh, this was so awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. To keep up with everything going on at Alternatives or to donate, you can visit us at our website, alternativesyouth.org. You can also follow us at Alternatives Inc. on Instagram or at Alternatives Youth on Facebook. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives' Executive Director, Bessie Alcantara. It's produced and researched by me, 
Catherine Best, with special help from Monica George, Teronica Boone, and Dave of Mixed Media. Stay tuned because next week, Bessie will be joined by Diana Castaneda to discuss anti-Blackness in the Latinx community. Thanks for listening.